this section, the course author, Nigel Warburton, is talking to A.C. Grayling, Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College, University of London. Anthony Grayling, I wonder if you could say a little bit about personal identity as a philosophical problem. The question of personal identity poses problems for philosophers because it's such a central notion in ethics, in the philosophy of law and in thinking about the individual and society. We want to know what makes a person the same person, therefore the same locus of responsibilities and rights over time. So in what does the identity of a person consist? And what are the main candidates? Well, there are a variety of candidates. The debate started with Locke. When Locke wrote his great essay concerning human understanding, uh, he sent copies round to all his colleagues and said, have I left anything out? And William Molyneux of Dublin wrote back and said, yes, you've left out the great question of what makes a person the same person over time. Prior to that, people just assumed that we had a substantial soul created by a deity and it was that which got you know, more depressed and more stained with sin as time went by. But by the end of the 17th century, things weren't so clear any longer and so Molyneux posed the challenge to Locke. And the challenge was, can you explain what allows us to talk about us being the same person despite change over time? That's right. It's easy enough to see what keeps a, a lump of rock the same lump of rock over time. And you can give a pretty good account of why you think that the acorn and the mighty oak that grew from it can be the same oak tree over time. Locke himself said it's the same organisation of matter. But what is it that underwrites the dramatic changes between a little baby, and a child, a teenager, a young adult and an elderly person uh, that makes that person the same? How is it that the old man is the same person as the little baby when first born? Well, one obvious answer is to say we're like acorns turning into oak trees and then declining and, and dying. Why aren't we just like an organism in the natural world like any other one? Locke noticed that uh, things can happen to people, like, for example, uh, a stroke or uh, being hit by lightning or um, something falling on your head, which would um, stop you being anything like the person you seem to be beforehand. And therefore seemed just insufficient to say that bodily continuity, as with an oak tree, is what keeps personhood the same over time. Because the concept of a person is not the concept of a physical thing. The concept of a person is a forensic concept. That is a concept important in morality and in law, something you can praise and blame. So it's the sameness of personhood, not the sameness of body, that really counted for Locke. So Locke actually distinguished between being the same man or same human being, as it were, which is like being the same oak tree and being the same person. Exactly right, yeah. And his main criterion for that was psychological continuity in the form of memory. Indeed. In fact, he coined the term, which has now become a commonplace in English, the term consciousness, to say that if we are conscious to ourselves of being the same person at a later time as we were at an earlier time, then we are continuous with that person. And, of course, it is memory, essentially, which is the connecting link between different phases of a person. Hence, if you lose your memory, you are no longer the same person as you were before that event. Well, who am I? You know, if I lose my memory, does that mean I cease to exist? Surely there's some sense in which I still am the same person, even though I've lost most of my memory. Well, we tend to think from the third person point of view that somebody who's lost their memory looks like the person that they were before. What, in fact, we've identified, Locke would say, is the same body. But what's been lost because of the discontinuity in memory is the continuity of personhood. For example, supposing you borrowed a, um, a fiver from that person before this catastrophic loss of memory, and afterwards the person uh, no longer remembered having lent you the fiver. 
uh, it would raise an interesting question as to whether you were an under, under an obligation to pay that person the fiver back. This is not the same person, even though it's the same human being, a human body. Um, so what exactly are we to think about the moral continuity of obligation, debt, the rest? For Locke, if I capture a former concentration camp guard who has completely forgotten, because he's an old man now, what he did in wartime, it would be wrong to hold him responsible, morally responsible, for what he'd done. That is a consequence of Locke's view. That's interesting, because there are some present-day issues that arise from pharmaceutical researchers developing new drugs which allow combat soldiers to forget what they've just done. So from a moral point of view, according to Locke, a soldier who'd taken one of those drugs wouldn't be responsible for the actions he'd performed or she'd performed on the battlefield, although he or she would be responsible for having taken the drug. Yes, it's interesting that because it, it, that point can be urged as an objection to the Lockean theory. Um, if um, you had done something horrendous and just bashed yourself on the head with a baseball bat in order no longer to be accountable for it, uh, that, that would raise a raft of other questions. So that indeed would be one of the reasons why um, later philosophers have called Locke's view into question. And Thomas Reed, for instance, suggested a case where somebody could remember as an old man what they'd done as a youth, and when, as a youth, they could remember what they'd done as a child, but the old man couldn't remember the action performed by the child. And that seemed to go against this whole idea that the self is constituted primarily by memory, because we still want to say there's over, there are overlapping memories there, that is enough to be the same self. Yes, Reed was relying on the fact that identity, which is a one-one relationship, should be transitive. So if the young man remembers being the child and the old man remembers being the young man, then the old man should be identical with the child. But on Locke's view, which is that the sameness of person essentially rests on continuity of memory, uh, that old man is not the same person as the young child. Now, Locke did believe that there was such a thing as the self, and it was basically constituted by our memories. Hume, however, seemed to be saying that when he looked within himself, there was no self to be found. Now, Hume was trying to be a very rigorous empiricist, and uh, he invited us to conduct the following empirical investigation, which is to, quote-unquote, look within, and to see if, in addition to all the uh, current sensations, thoughts, images, feelings, pangs of hunger, and the rest, we could find something over and above them, which owned them, which persisted through them, and which was ourself. And he said, you couldn't. And so he came up with this view, which is known as the bundle theory of the self, in which, at any moment, you just are an occurrent bundle of sensations and feelings. Now, jumping ahead a few hundred years, Derek Parfit has been an immensely influential figure in the area of personal identity. It seems to me that he's drawing on both Locke and Hume and what he has to say about the nature of the self. Yes, indeed. Parfit's view is a, is a descendant of a, a combination of Locke and Hume, uh, and the result for Parfit is that the idea of a person and the idea of identity, so the two components of personal identity, are not either of them very important. That, that really w what we have here is a case not so much of continuity even, but of connectedness between psychological states at different times, that what we think of as the person at a later time is not at all the same person in any sense of that expression as at an earlier time, but is something connected by a, a causal chain, as it might be, or by a set of events, to uh, an earlier psychological phase. 
on my reading of it, he's saying that personal identity doesn't really matter. And for Parfit, that has huge implications for how he thinks about his future death. He's saying that when, when he's thinking about his own death, all he's talking about is the ceasing of certain sorts of psychological states which are connected in some ways with the ones that he's having now. Yes. It's not as if it's the, the death of, of his self. Yes, the, the idea that it's me who will be undergoing these things in the future is the is to be thinking in the wrong way about whatever it is in the future that will cease to be. That, I think, is the implication of what he's saying. So just to summarise this, the question of personal identity isn't simply an abstract philosophical question. It really does have moral implications, particularly as it crops up in Locke, because not just responsibility for our actions in the, in the present world, but for Locke, the possibility of being judged after death is really at stake there. Yes, it was uh, um, uh, certainly at stake for Locke to be thinking of a, a posthumous situation where you might be held to account for things that you'd done, praised or blamed for them. But even if you didn't take that kind of view, and one thing that's very important about Parfit's view is this, that a person as a forensic entity, that is the thing where responsibility, rights, choice and um, the, the whole panoply of moral concepts apply, what we want to be able to say of, of such a, a thing is that it can have projects, it can have plans, it can intend, it can carry out its intentions, it can work towards goals and aims, it can be held accountable for what it does and therefore be praised or blamed for them. In other words, it is a node in a very rich network of, uh, of concepts which fall without it. If there were no such thing as persons, if, for example, we were all automata, so we have no free will, no choice uh, and the rest, then the, the whole apparatus of moral thinking collapses. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.